Hey, Red Club Nation, I'm Sarah Larbia, and I'm here with Daniel St. Jean. Today, we are interviewing Ryan Carson from Carson Law, my personal real estate investing lawyer who helps close many deals, has worked with many of my students, have, has also helped with my JV agreements, corporations, everything in between. Before we get into that, Daniel, it's nice to co-host again with you. I think it's been a while. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so this afternoon, we're going to quiz Ryan about things, m mistakes people make and, and, and talk a lot about the prevention, right? Absolutely. We've got lots of great points, lots of great talking points, what he's seeing in the market today. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not all, all sad and gloomy. There are, there are some, I think, opportunities and, you know, there's some really great opportunities now to be able to negotiate a lot more than before. On that note, we are back in person here and there as well. So check out therightclub.com, go to the events tab and see what we are doing. We've got lots of online webinars and, but we also have some in-person that we're doing in Oakville and, and across other regions. So take a look at that and don't forget to leave a rating and review. If you enjoy this podcast, now let's bring in Ryan Carson. All right, let's do it. Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life. Ryan Carson from Carson Law. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. How are you, sir? Good, good. I'm excited. You're my go-to lawyer. You're, you know, definitely a valued, valued team member helping us maneuver through a lot of closings. But not only that, a lot of, you know, corporation stuff like setups or business setups, JV agreements, all that good stuff in between. You actually even helped me put together a really good midterm rental contract as well. So you're like, you know, you have lots of different arms to the business and, and I think that's, that's really exciting, but you know, maybe you shared a little bit about like what it is that your firm does a little bit about you and then we'll get uh, into our questions. Sure. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. And thanks uh, Daniel for, for having me on the right club here, uh, Sarah. Thank you for that introduction. I appreciate that. Yeah. So Carson Law, I'm in my 15th going on 16th year of practice at practicing law in Ontario. And uh, the firm, obviously, like you said, works quite a bit with real estate investors. And we really enjoy working with real estate investors as, as a client sort of avatar. They're, they're sort of an exciting client to work with. Not only do you have the, you know, the excitement of the transactions and the closings of the real estate deals, but we get to work with them and help them set up sort of, you know, corporate structure or business structure for them. You know, whether it's starting out from the very beginning of just your first deal or you know, you, you've grown to a certain point and, and now there's certain things that you want to do on a corporate or a business level and a tax level to, to become more efficient, save and make more money. And then ultimately, you know, start talking about planning of like exit strategies and, and sales and transitions of your business, that sort of thing. So it's, it's fun to work with real estate investors because they allow us to sort of do all of those kinds of discussions and and work on all those different types of areas of business and so you know it's doing the real estate purchase doing the real estate refinance doing a re real estate sale 
but it's uh, incorporating, it's doing JVs, it's doing shareholder agreements, it's working with the clients and talking to them of, you know, maybe some best practices for some tax and estate planning. So we get to work with their accountants and advisors about corporate restructuring and rollovers that be beneficial to them, help them make and save more money and be successful in setting themselves up for maybe an exit of a sale or or, you know, retirement or whatever the case might be down the road. Right. And then ultimately the final piece of the puzzle is helping them with that estate planning, which I think is probably the piece that most investors kind of leave or forget about. And it's, and it's, you know, pretty important when you think about all that you're, you know, accumulating or amassing, you know, if you had one property and now in a couple of years, you're at like 10 or 20. Or you've got a whole bunch of JV agreements out there and so forth without being on registered title, all these sorts of aspects. Like it's pretty important to kind of talk about and put together like a good estate plan, wills, especially if you're incorporated, you can take advantage of primary and secondary wills. So that that's going to save you quite a bit of money. That will be beneficial to your estate. It won't be so, so much beneficial to you, but estate planning piece is pretty important for real estate investors. And I think it's one that's often maybe neglected or put on the back burner, which I understand because it's not the exciting part. The exciting part is the acquisitions and the deals. And that's what everybody gets excited for. But that corporate structuring, that planning, that estate work can be, you know, pretty important. And in the market right now, I think lots of people are kind of they're doing a wait and see approach or they've slowed down a little bit because of what's happened with interest rates and the volume of deals out there and so forth. So this is a great time if you're not, you know, flying as fast as you were the last couple of years, this is a great time to, to sit down with your advisors and maybe do some more planning when it's not as, as busy or you're taking a bit of a hold if that's your approach at the moment. Right. Yeah. So. But that's yeah. great. That's great advice. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people probably that don't have or even if they do have their wills and power of attorneys set up, maybe it's outdated and they haven't done it. And so much has changed. Right. Because yeah. now they have a ton more businesses, ten more corporations and different maybe kids. Maybe it's, you know, new spouses or whatnot. So lots mm -hmm. of changes. And it is important to keep those up to date. But I do, I do. So obviously you're you're you do everything essentially that, you know, in a real estate investing type of lawyer almost. I think everything that said that we would need, but I, I do want to go back. You mentioned, you know, things that are happening, you know, things are slowing down. Like, what are you seeing from a legal standpoint in the market right now? Like, you know, let's call it fall of 2022 and, yeah. you know, uh, anything we should be kind of concerned about. Uh, you know, I don't know necessarily if it's concerning. I think everybody just, way change happens, keep, like, people are always nervous about change, right? And, and so obviously with the sharp increase in interest rates that obviously kind of got a lot of people, whether you're a real estate investor or just, you know, buying and selling your own personal properties, obviously it got people a bit worried, squeamish, nervous, et cetera, whatever adjective you want to use. And, and so people, I think naturally sort of just stopped dead in their place. Right. So the biggest thing I think everybody's noticed is, is there's a pretty solid decrease in, you know, deal volume and so forth, like deals completed and so forth. I think the Canadian average I read yesterday based on October data was something like 39% decrease, you know, year to year comparison. Right. And I think a lot of the areas that we service sort of around the golden horseshoe and everything, I think 
we've seen as as much as a 50% decrease in certain areas. So the volume is definitely kind of of closed business has certainly changed year year to year comparison. But the interesting part, I think, is even with that sharp increase in in the you know the mortgage rates, you can still because the prices have correspondingly come down, obviously compared to February price, you can still basically have almost an identical monthly cash flow. In some cases, I think some people, even though they're like looking at six percent interest instead of two, people are actually having a better cash flow, right? Because they they don't need to borrow as much money. Their land transfer tax costs are lower because the price is lower. They saved, you know, they saved more than they needed to because they were, you know, originally starting to try to get into the real estate market or as an investor to like with February numbers and now you're at October, November numbers. And so you've got more money in your pocket to maybe spread over two deals instead of one deal. So I think, I think now that hopefully the, the shock of the increase, increasing rates has sort of started to subside and it looks like maybe, maybe one more increase at the end of the year, but hopefully the beginning of next year has actually, you know, no increase, or maybe even they're saying possibly a small decrease. You know, hopefully people will, uh, will be, uh, you know, excited to get back into it because I think it's a great time for you to try to buy because you've got less competition, right? There's fewer people now out there buying because they're nervous or scared, even though there's a bit fewer deals possibly out there to look at, you just have less people to compete against and you can still as long as your business metrics line up, you can still, you know, have the same cash flows more or less and maybe just have the same rate of return too. So it's, it's not all doom and gloom. Like I think everybody was worried about. And I think the experienced real estate investors are seeing this actually as more of an opportunity that it is, you know, a problem. Right. And so that's, I think the thing that to keep in mind, I mean, it's this, the whole investment strategy of you know, buy when it's low and sell when it's high, right? And if prices are low right now and you can still make it work in your business model to have the right cash flow that you want, you know, as interest rates up, why not buy when there's less competition and lower prices? And the other thing too, is we have to remember last February, there were two kinds of people selling houses. There were people who had to sell a house and then there were people who didn't really have to sell a house, but wanted to take advantage of the market. And that's when you had the multiple offers and the offers without inspection or whatever. But right now, if I look at the listing, I'm thinking nobody would just, in his right mind now would want to put a house in the market just because they feel like they're going to be making a lot of money. So that to me tells me that most of the people out there selling houses are selling them because they have to for some reason or another. And that's usually when you can negotiate and you can even probably offer less than what the asking price yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, that that's what I mean. I think even though I think people are really fixated on interest rates and I understand why, because it can have a great impact on like affordability and cash flow. And I guess the, you know, rate of return at the end of the day, you know, whether you're doing this as a personal acquisition or an investment acquisition, I, I totally understand the concern and wanting to watch interest rates, but because interest rates went up and prices came correspondingly down. I mean, so many, uh, there's so many different models out there where even though you're at 6% interest rate or something instead of two, 
you're actually still around the same cash flow. And as I mentioned before, with cheaper land transfer tax cost because the price is lower and you save more money. So you don't need as much money down because you don't need as much of a down payment. And the other great part is you probably have, you know, well, you have a, a smaller mortgage to worry about too. So there's lots of, I think, perks about it. And yeah, exactly like you said, Daniel, I think people who are listing right now are they're listing because they're motivated sellers. And so there's maybe a, for the first time in several years, an opportunity for the buyers to kind of get a bit of a better deal. And it, and it definitely make sure they, they have a well-written deal. Like you can have conditions and, you know, inspections and possible, you know, or not possible proper finance approvals. You, you know, I've even seen for the first time in like, I don't even know how long at least three or four years, people have like conditions of like sale of other properties, right? Like never saw a condition on sales in the last couple of years. So yeah, buyers are really having an opportunity to have a balanced negotiation for once, or even maybe a bit of a, a weighted negotiation in their favor. Like you said, get a little below list price or get terms in there that make you feel more comfortable to do the acquisition. So it's, it's a good time to why, even though interest rates are going up, I think. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Today's podcast is brought to you by LegalSecondSuites.com. Ken Beckendam is an amazing real estate investor. He understands the process of the conversion inside and out. And he has built one of the largest by volume design build firms in the GTA that specializes in legal multifamily conversions, anywhere from two to 15 units. And he's been involved in either the designer or the contractor in well over 250 conversion projects, which resulted in over 600 legal dwelling units. That is a lot of legal dwelling units. And Ken and his team at Legal Second Suites, they cover everywhere from Halton, Niagara, Haldeman, Norfolk, Brant, Hamilton, London, Tri-Cities, Barrie, York, and anything in between. He's one of the few firms that can complete the entire process for you from design to construction to property management. So it's truly a one-stop shop. So reach out to Ken at LegalSecondSuites.com. Again, it is LegalSecondSuites.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, agreed. Like you said, prices are very, very similar. So now that we're buying and we're buying with conditions, what are some good clauses that you would recommend, you know, before somebody goes firm, removing all the conditions, you know, what are good clauses to have in contracts and agreement of purchase and sale contracts? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, going back to something we just said a moment ago, I think making sure you've got, you know, conditional on buyer having financial like approval and review with their, with their mortgage or their bank reps, getting that satisfactory financing squared away before they firm up is a, is a must be inspections, like making sure you've got, you know, the opportunity and, and because you're not probably dealing with multiple offer situations, you, you know, you definitely want to take the time and have a, a proper inspection done of the property. Like don't get the condition in there and then just not do the inspection, like actually inspect the property, make sure it's, it's done properly and thoroughly. And um, that inspection now can be used to reduce the price even further. And I've seen that like re yeah. recently actually take back in the day, they'd be like, screw you, you're not even getting an inspection regardless. But now you can actually take that back and you can yeah. go back to the seller and say, oh, there's all of these additional issues that we didn't know about. 
Yes. Like recently, I've seen, you know, $15,000, $20,000 decreases from the agreed upon price originally. Yeah, you're absolutely right, sir. I mean, you would have never, well, you would have never been able to make an offer with conditions. And then if you were fortunate to be able to do that, you would have never been able to have done the inspection and then like claw back the price or something or ask them to fix it. They just go to the next buyer. So yeah, absolutely. Not only can the inspection give you a better lay of the land and know what you're buying, it can also allow you to do future negotiation as far as like, oh yeah, no, this roof is, you know, visibly we knew it was aged, but we, like it's got one year left. So, you know, we got to factor in like a, you know, 10, 20%. Ten or you know twenty thousand dollar decrease, you know, because we're gonna have to do a new roof or something, yeah. right? And you, so and you might as well, and you might as well try. The worst thing I'm gonna say is no, but I think right now, well, like you know, a lot of people are eager to sell. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people are. What about like vacant possessions? Because there's you know a lot of talk on the news right now where people are are taking possession over their property, thinking they're gonna be moving in, or just even investors thinking they can get the tenants out. I, I know there's some yeah. some stipulations around it, but like. You know, taking, getting something, an offer put in with a tenant in there, you know, what are some things to consider? Yeah. So like, you know, it all comes down to, I guess, how you want to use it, right? Like, and so determining ahead of time, you know, do I want to, do I want this and I want to tenant it because I want the tenants and I want the cash flow or, you know, do I want the tenants? And, and I have to jump in here. Most of the time though, the tenants are not paying market rent and you probably could do better with a yeah. tenant the, like of your own placed at the time of closing just putting it out there but anyways yeah no <laughs> and, and and so you definitely leapfrog right to the next thing i was going to say which is like so you know do you want the tenants in there because you want to buy it as a cash flowing property like immediately and you don't want the hassle of like you know finding other tenants and you've got no intentions to do renovations or whatever i mean if that's the case then then just making sure in the agreement that you've got proper like rent rule disclosures, like transfer of leases, assignment of leases, you know, proof of record keeping for like, what is the current month's rent and any like prepaid deposits, like all of that sort of stuff should be flushed out as part of the terms of the agreement. If you're just taking the current tenants and, you know, assuming and taking them over and moving along as a cash flowing rental property. However, to your point, Sarah, you know, if the intent is, hey, this property, and, and as many people listing might know already or agree, you know, not only do we see increases in like mortgage rates, but we see a massive increase in spike in most areas for rental, right? Like the, the rental rates are through the roof because the big problem is really supply. It's not really, it's a supply issue, right? Like Canada's and Ontario's problem is supply. There's not enough housing, right? And so like most people's you know, rental rates are quite high, but to your point, it could be maybe even higher, right? If you do a little bit of touch up and work on the property, or maybe you do significant changes and like you build out more units or whatever the case is, the bottom line is if you're targeting the property to acquire it so you can renovate, whether it's, you know, modestly or substantially, and you want to get those tenants out and then tenants in that are paying at then market rates that are much higher or at least somewhat higher, you know, that's where it gets a little trickier. You want to make sure you've got, you know, you've got proper negotiations and clauses in place that would hopefully see, 
the sellers, like if you're, if you're the buyer, the seller properly terminating all these people prior to the closing, right? I mean, I've usually said to realtors that are working with investors or clients that want to buy properties that have current tenants, but they don't want them, you know, either because they want to move in personally or they want to do like what you're saying. They want to get all the tenants out, fix it up and then put new ones in with, you know, higher rents. You know, you want to make sure that all the paperwork's in there to say who's responsible to terminate the current tenants. And most importantly, that they're doing it on the proper forms with the proper notice of the land, landlord tenant board and residential tenancies act, because as you guys both know, the regime of tenancy laws in Ontario was heavily weighted to the tenants. So they'll, the LTB will almost always side with the tenant if there's, you know, a wrong form or a wrong notice or both, or just other little procedural like oversights, they're always going to just be like, well, that's your problem. Tenant stays, right? So, you know, putting in all these different proper terms about who's serving the, the N4 notices, making sure they can serve those notices. That's another thing we see with these deals is people haven't like looked at the leases properly. And they think they can give them the notice to get them out, but they're not at the end of the, the fixed term of the lease, right? So Hence why go month to month in Ontario, no fixed terms, because then you're like tied, right? And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. If you're a busy real estate investor or related professional and looking to build your brand and business, reach more people and stand out from the competition, then you'll want to listen to the Personally Brandtastic podcast. I'm the host, Paul Copcut, and on the show, we talk to leading marketing experts about building your personal brand with the latest strategies and ideas. Because marketing is how you get their attention, but personal branding is why they choose you. So if you're looking to build your brand and business, then check out the latest episodes of the Personally Brandtastic podcast on your favorite podcast player or app, or head on over to personallybrandtastic.com. And like your tenants can stay there forever, you technically, you know. <laughs> But tying yourself into like a 12 month lease when you don't necessarily need to just got to put it out there because of this like conversation I have with a lot of newer investors and they want to do these 12 month leases. And I know the banks like them, but they're not good for investors and landlords in Ontario. I can't speak about the rest of the provinces, but it doesn't do it doesn't add anything for us. You know what I mean? It just creates, I think, more handcuffs along the way. So the other thing, Ryan, I would just say and, and let me know if you know you disagree, but, you know, if you are expected to get vacant possession. Make sure to leave like one of your three or four additional showings for like prior to closing to check to make sure everything is gone. Because what happens if you go and then the tenant hasn't even started packing yet the day before? Like what, what, what would happen in that case, Ryan? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Give yourself a buffer. That's a, that's a great point to bring up. Don't make like the closing date of the deal, like the day you want to put new tenants in or like have your trade start working on renovating the property or something. And so to your point, yeah, have a, have a buffer so that not only do you have a couple of viewings left, maybe like seven days from closing and then like a day or two from closing, but have a buffer of that closing date to like when you actually want to start working on the property and and be able to put your new tenants in if, if that's what's happening. Yeah, because absolutely nothing good comes from that, Sarah. <laughs> Basically, you know, if you get to the closing date 
And everybody, everybody said, yeah, yeah, all these people are going to be gone. They got all the right notices. Everybody signed off, like whether it was like, you know, the actual notice forms with the LTB and everything, or he did like, you know, an agreement to terminate the the tenancies, you know, cash for keys arrangement, you know, even if you've done one of those different options and those people are still there, it is just, it's going to be a nightmare. It's going to be very stressful for you as the buying investor, depending on the selling investor, it's probably going to be very stressful for them because like they're kind of on the hook for this because these people aren't gone and everybody agreed they would be and everybody was given proper agreements and notices and everything. So just, it, it's really a stressful situation. And it's actually maybe a proactive thing that I usually talk to the realtors about when, when they're acting for owners that want to list, like determine ahead of time, is this property more valuable to list empty or tenanted? Like who's going to more attractively want to buy this, right? And if your answer is overwhelmingly one or the other, and let's say the answer was, oh, it's better to sell it vacant because then they can come, they're going to get new tenants in and that's going to be, that's going to be more attractive, right? Or no, it's better to keep it, you know, tenanted. Like people aren't going to want to, this is a student housing, right? Like it's a McMaster student housing in Hamilton. No one's coming in and doing any work on this thing. They're just literally pumping the, the kids in and, you know, bringing them out. Right. And so like, you just got to determine what's the more marketable way for this property to hit the market. And we've always tried to encourage the realtors and the owners who are trying to list and sell these kinds of properties. If it's determined it's better and more marketable at a higher price to have it empty, they get rid of those ten tenants before like you close. Because the problem is once they know you're negotiating with a new buyer coming along, like depending on if you get a really professional tenant who's going to kind of put the screws to you, they'll just stay there. Even if they've signed all the right stuff and got the right notice, what, what are you going to do? Call the cops? Like it just doesn't work, right? Like. You got to go in front of the board and that emergency hearing takes time to get to. So they, they, they know how to play the game, right? So if you can get rid of them before, because you know, selling this is going to be better empty, it's going to, you're going to get more buyers. You're going to attract higher offers because they can fix it up and get new tenants in at higher rates than the existing ones. Then I think it's better just to, to proactively get rid of them and then list it. So they're, they're gone. Right. So you don't have to even worry about those terms in the agreement. So can I ask just a quick question? So like, would you do like the end form to do the renovations as an example? So if it needs work, cause the place has been trashed and then like your reasoning is that you're going to sell it. Like what are the chances of like, so like, let's just say you can't sell it. And then your tenant's going to come back and say it was in bad faith or whatnot. I, I guess you have to try to sell it, but what happens if you can't sell it and then you end up having to re-rent it? Yeah, well, I mean, so I guess in that case, like, I, it all would depend on what kind of notices you gave, right? I mean, I guess if you do, like, the cash for keys arrangement, as opposed to saying, like, oh, we're trying to do substantial, like, renovations, then you don't, like, if you do the cash for keys scenario and you just do an agreement to terminate the, the tenancy, then they can't really come back because you, you've, you know, come to an agreement and everybody's moved on. Right. 
if you go the route of like giving them the notice for renovation, a substantial renovation, and then, you, you know, your scenario pops up that you just mentioned, Sarah, you know, that's, that's where it gets a bit trickier, right? Because yeah, you do potentially have a bit of an issue there. They might demand to come back or be compensated because, you know, you didn't re-rent it at, at proper rates or whatever, right? So I think you'd probably go the route of like a notice to terminate the tenancy if you want that route of this is going to be way more valuable if I list it empty so that people can get new t- new tenants in at market rates or do like a little bit of renovation and then bang, they put new people in, right? Whereas if you terminate them just through like the normal course of the end forms, whether they came to the end of the lease or you're doing the renovation, you know, notice, you know, you always run the risk that they could potentially try to come back. So if you just do a cash for keys, yeah, it might be a little bit more expensive to do it that way. But if you're the seller, you know, they're gone and you don't have those headaches. It'll be, it'll be a cleaner purchase and sale. Cash for, so cash for keys and, and 11? Yes. I think that's the analog that you Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's the official name is an agreement to end the tenants, right? So okay. it's the, it's the catch all agreement one, as opposed to the end form for like ending, you know, ending the tenancy because it's end of chair or ending the tenancy because you're moving in for personal use or ending the tenancy tenancy because you're doing renovation, right? So Carson, I would like to change the direction of the next questions, if you don't mind. Sure. I heard you a couple of years ago before COVID do a brilliant presentation about JVs. And can you give us two or three top tips for setting up good JVs with, with, with partners? Yeah. I mean, I think the number one tip is, is talking about and making sure you have documented in the JV first and foremost, like what happens if stuff goes badly, right? I mean, it's really easy to flush in and, and talk about and, and have in the agreement, all the good things like, okay, you and me are working together, Daniel, and you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one on title and go on a mortgage and I'm going to chip in, you know, 50 K. And then you're going to be the active partner, handle all the trades and everything else behind the scenes. And, you know, everybody's expected rate of return is, you know, you know, X, right? I mean, that's easy to put in and obviously needs to go in the JV, but I think it's really important and not enough people spend enough time on like the, the what ifs of like, we don't like each other anymore. What if, what if this project doesn't succeed, right? Because maybe that's a little bit more possible in today's world, right? Like the market is not such a potential shoe-in if it's like, hey, do the burr method, you know, and you're trying to exit in a couple of years, right? And get that guaranteed like institutional loan and get up, get the private off, right? Like it might not be as easy to do that now as it was, you know, a couple of years ago, right? So I think the first thing I'd always talk, like suggest and encourage investors to do is document the problems, right? Like what could happen? What could cause us to hate each other and not want us to work together? And if these situations happen, how do we exit, right? And if all those things are well documented uh, and signed by everybody at the very beginning or at, in the first stages of the, of the joint venture, 
then I think it's a lot harder for people to try to successfully turn around and argue that they're not gonna, they, they're, they don't have to be accountable to what they've agreed to. Right. I think another thing I would suggest is going to like the accountability and like the reliability of the document, make sure each party has independent legal advice. A lot of people try to like do it themselves or, you know, they have a lawyer draft it for them, but then their, their investment partner doesn't get it reviewed. So last thing you want is to be expecting to, to rely on and, and, you know, think that this is going to be a document that you can count on. And then somebody gets it pushed aside by a judge because they, they didn't have independent legal advice. And so they win some sort of argument with the judge that, or the mediator that, Hey, there wasn't independent legal advice. So they didn't really know what they were signing. Right. So I think, you know, dealing with the, the problems that could happen and like, how do you exit, like we call them the exit strategies of the JV, the, you know, ILA, those are two important ones. And I think the third one would be, because it might be more, again, plausible and possible to happen in today's market. How do you do like additional capital calls and contributions to the JP? So what's the expectation to the parties on their needing to be more money? How does that work? Is there like a dilution or anti-dilution clause in the JV? If one party can put in and the other party can't, you know, what happens then, right? Because it, you might find projects go budget now, or you don't get as much money like on the, on the refinance or, or whatever it, you know, the costs, costs and projects could go up or on the opportunity could go up and you need more capital. So I think those would be three tips or suggestions I would recommend with, um, whether it's a JV or a partnership agreement or, you know, other, that's probably something to consider between real estate investors. And then when I'm reading your description of services, there's a line there that says to us, prevention, prevention is less expensive than recovering from a trial and error approach. So though yeah. all those things that you described there would fit in the prevention. And um, I want to add one more thing to this. So we had our rent own contracts done by a law firm, but at some point, and I don't remember the circumstances, but I needed to add one paragraph and, and Maybe it was a question of time. Certainly it was not a question of money, but it was a question of time. I needed it quickly. So I added one paragraph and it sounded really good. Yeah, it really sounded really good. But three years later, the tenant leaves the, the property and there's about $6,500 of repair that need to be done to the port, whatever. I go to court with that. I take them to small claim court. And to summarize here, the judge look at the paragraph where it says the tenant buyers will be responsible for blah, 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 blah. The law, the judge said it's, if it said the tenant buyer shall, yeah, yeah, I would have gone, I would have made 6,500 bucks because he was going to rule in my favor, but will, he said, is not a strong enough word. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Shall is always the best word to use. I don't ask me. It's crazy how sometimes it's like one tiny word that makes it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that there's a famous case that they the comma, right? The comma yeah, case. The, yeah, the comma case. Yeah. So it cost it was a million dollar comma, basically. That's crazy. That yeah, yeah. They lost. I think they lost the deal, right? A million dollar loss. Or yeah, something. yeah. There's a uh, in a sense. The, that's right. The the awarded damages were in that were in the millions, and it was because of the 
misplaced or lack thereof of a trauma and there needed to be one for the proper interpretation in the sentence and so forth. So yeah. So uh, <laughs> hopefully that doesn't happen to you. So get your lawyer to really <laughs> find. Yeah. We find, we just don't have any, we don't have any conjunction, tune whatever the contract sentence, is just a run on sentence. There you go. Awesome. Awesome. So the next, the next part of the pot, Sorry, go ahead, Daniel. I was going to say before Sarah gets into the, our set of lightning round questions, I have one, one last question from me. What is the one mistake you see real estate investors make over and over when they're hiring a lawyer to work on their real estate transactions? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say one thing is that we're kind of left to the very last minute of, of the transaction itself. And I mean, we always try to encourage, I mean, Sarah, I think knows this because we, we work with her quite a bit personally and her students and investors and stuff. It's, it, you know, even though we might not do anything right away at the very beginning, this, if we can get roped in and introduced to everybody at the very beginning of the process, um, there may be things that we can help you like add into the negotiation, which will potentially save you big headaches, you know, down the road, if you don't bring us in when you're negotiating the deal or just even like talking to you ahead of time and knowing more about the deal so that it's, it's on everybody's radar and we're working on it more in advance. I think when lawyers get kind of brought in at the very, very end, and there's only like two weeks to go and this kind of thing, it's a lot harder for us to learn what we need to know about the, the deal. The history of the deal and the negotiations, like the intentions of the property, and then just in a short time processing it, like we we have to with you know title searches and off title searches and dealing with financing and signing documents and so forth. The earlier you can bring us in, I think the better. You know, we certainly appreciate being involved earlier in the process. We think we can give the investor client more value that way, because hopefully we can review and talk to them about the deal while it's still being negotiated. Or if we're not involved that early, then at least we're brought in like right after the deal's firmed up so we can start our process early to make sure we don't run out of time doing, you know, title searches and requisitions and document prep and so forth. So I think that's one thing that I consistently see is People kind of leave us to the end. We're a little bit of a last minute thought, it's, but it's kind of funny because you need us to close the deal. Like we're the closer, if you like a sports analogy. So it's sort of like, bring us in early, even if we don't do a lot of stuff right away at the beginning, hopefully we'll give you some, some input that would be of value. Otherwise we'll start our process earlier, giving us more time to be ready for closing. And, and yeah. that goes right along the, again, your philosophy of prevention. Yes, absolutely. Now, one more thing I'd like to add to that, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth because you're the interviewee, but one thing also that I would like to offer as advice, and you can shake your head this way or that way, is picking the lawyer who's going to help you. Your family lawyer is not necessarily the best guy to help you build a portfolio, and neither is your, the, the guy who gave you a divorce last year. And even, even I saw a case a couple of years, one of my investor went to talk to a lawyer who lives nearby and, and it says real estate. So he goes to him 
And then the, the, in, in, the, in the talks, the lawyer said, you cannot put RSP mortgages on property. It's illegal in Canada. So cool. yeah. So what happened is that he found out that this lawyer in the, in the four years since he's been practicing law, only buys, only deals with people who buy their own house. He's never be- dealt with an, an investor buying a house. Therefore, he, and it, you know what I mean? Like you got to pick the right guy. You're going to pick the right people. If you, if you deal with somebody who's never, ever heard the word vendor take back, well, not good. Yeah, no, I would agree hundred percent with you. Just like, I mean, I would never take on for a client, like doing like a separation or a divorce for them. Like I, I don't, I don't family, you know, same, same sort of thing, you know, people who are listening or, you know, working on doing investor deals. Definitely want to work with a re, like an experienced real estate lawyer, but I would even take it a step further and say, deal with an experienced real estate investor lawyer, because I know there's quite a few real estate lawyers out there that have more, more experience than me, but their focus is almost a hundred percent with personal acquisitions, right? So personal buy and sells, refis, title transfers for like other estate purposes or something like that. And, and one that I like to share is we always get people saying like, you know, do you know how to do an assignment or a wholesale deal? Because my, my real estate lawyer has never even heard of it before. Right. Yeah. Or they're, or they're nervous about it, right? Like they're, they don't understand how this can be done. Right. So that's just an example of, yeah, it's, you definitely want to work with a real estate lawyer, somebody's experienced with real estate, but even more so probably somebody who's experienced dealing with real estate investors and, and is, is hopefully maybe a real estate investor themselves, right? Cause then, you know, you know, that they're not only knowledgeable of the law in the area, but they're kind of going through some of the same stuff that you've gone through as well. So it's more, you can have a better relationship and be relatable with, with your, with your counsel. So, yeah. All right. So to summarize, you don't want your ophthalmologist to do dental work. <laughs> no, probably not. not right. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Great. Great insight. And Ryan, it's been a pleasure for, you know, getting to know you and working with you over the last few years and, and your team. They're, they're awesome. So Please. the next part is, the next part is our lightning rounds. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Butler Mortgages, Canada's number one mortgage brokerage three years in a row. If you need a great mortgage broker to help you with investing in real estate or to help you purchase your next home, reach out to Daniel Patton and Michael Zanzini from Butler Mortgages. You can do that by calling 905-569-8326 or toll free at one 888 and check out their website, butlermortgages.com or by email daniel.patton at butlermortgages.com or michael.zanzini at butlermortgages.com. And let's go to the lightning round. So under 20 seconds or less per answer, just four questions sure. and every yes gets the same answer. Is you ready to play? Okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> All right, here's question number one. What is the best advice you've ever received from another investor or at a networking event? Make sure you have a strong power team. So make sure you've got great advisors, starting with your real estate mentor and coach, finance rep, tax advisor, lawyer. Make sure you've got a strong power team. They'll save you down the road. Definitely. All right, Daniel, next question. 
Yes. So, and, and I'm going to go personal here because I'm reading your biography and you say you're considered the office philosopher and you talk a lot about perfect work-life balance. So for our listeners here, what does that look like, Ryan? Perfect work-life balance. Well, for, for me personally, like I've got a, I've got younger kids. I've got a 12 and a 14 year old. So I like to be able to, you know, balance, you know, working hard and being in the office and, and servicing our clients with being able to still be a dad and be at their events. So I like to coach their sports and, and go to all their games and practices. And then I also, my wife and I have been happily married for a number of years. So I still try to make time for, for her and I as well. So not just spending my entire time in the office all the time, but just a nice balance of, you know, making sure you're giving it a, you know, a 50 hour work week or whatever the case might be, because that's kind of what we need to do to get our, our job done. But at the same time, still being at all those events for the for the kids and spending time with wife and family, that's, that's balanced for me. And I know it's, it's different for some of my other associates because they don't have the same family dynamic to, to be involved with, but that's, that's balanced for me. And you think that's actually achievable? I think so. I mean, I think it's just, it's just, you know, if you don't, if you don't try to do it and make it a priority, then it won't happen, right? Like if you don't, I know Sarah likes to work out a lot. And so she's always said, Hey, if you don't put it in the calendar, then you won't do it. Right. So I try to do the same thing. I try to basically get up early in the morning and be like, okay, this is my time to work out. If I don't do it here, then it won't happen. Right. So it's the same sort of thing with the work-life balance. You just have to kind of say to yourself. Yeah, I could keep working till like midnight every night, but I've got to stop at, you know, five o'clock. I got to go to the, the kids activities, sit down and have dinner with my wife after, and, and then I'll start again early the next day. You know, I'll start at eight, eight or seven in the morning the next day. So I can make sure I'm out when the kids are finished and the activities start. So you just have to kind of, and I think the important thing too is making sure clients understand that about you, right? Like if they want to have a lawyer that is working 24 hours a day, well, then I'll just have to be honest and say, that's, that's not going to be us, right? I think we can get this done for you, but if you want me to be working all the time and respond to all your emails and your calls at 10 PM at night, well, that's probably not the right. I think if people know that and you gave them that expectation, then they can make the choice to see what fits for them. And, and likewise. Me as a professional, I can choose whether it's a good client to work with, right? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Okay, great answer. Next question. What is the attribute, Ryan, in your opinion, that has made you most successful? I I think lots of people say I'm personable and approachable. Like a lot of times I get the comment of you're not, you don't really seem like a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) I I never know if that's good or bad, right? But I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. I think I just, I just enjoy the relationship. I enjoy talking with people and at least in my areas of practice, I think you, you need to have that approachability. You need to make people feel comfortable that they can talk to you and be open and you like, you don't want them to be intimidated or scared of you. And you certainly don't want them to feel like, oh, I can't call him because he's going to send me a monster bill. Right. I think people. People need to know that they can talk and be approachable with their lawyer so that the lawyer can, you know, gather all the important facts and give all the proper advice. Right. So I think just being approachable and personable is probably 
been something I've heard from some clients and others that has made me, I guess, good at what I do. Yeah. My last question for you is in, again, in your introduction, you say that you talk about work-life balance and you talk about spending time away from the office and on whatever beach you could find. So if I could wave a magic wand right now, get you and your family to a beach right now, where would you want to be? Well, we always have enjoyed when travel was something you could do, which we're going traveling for the first time at Christmas again. So we're really excited about that. And so we usually would make our trips down to Mexico or the Caribbean. I've never been to Turks and Caicos. I would love to go there with the kids and the family. Um, or we have family that live in Australia. And so we, I have not personally made the trip down there. And I would love to do that. My wife and daughter did, and they raved about the beaches that existed there. And so it would be fantastic. I think if I could just be, be teleported somewhere, but you want one of those two spots or both. Nice. Oh, that that's because teleported because you don't want to do what it's the just a long, long flight. It's like 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty long. Yeah. I think they live on the Indian ocean side. So they live up in Perth. So you can do a direct flight where you go, well, not a direct flight, but you go Toronto to Dubai and then Dubai into Perth. So you get one layover and it's 27 hours of air flight. And then it's just a question of how long is your layover in Dubai or something. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I that have like some good, good beer or wine or Caesars on, on that flight. Caesars, you know what you say. <laughs> Ryan and the Caesars. Awesome, Ryan. That was, that was great. Where can our Right Club Nation reach out and find out? You can follow us on any of our social media or, or look us up online at artisanlaw.ca and we'd be happy to, to talk with anybody, whether you're just getting started or you're in growth mode or you're trying to plan for, you know, sale or the future. We'd be happy to work with any of you investors that are out there listening. So take care out there and good luck. Awesome. Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show. I just Thanks, heard... guys. Thank you for having me. I just want to make sure they get your, your uh, www.carsonlaw.ca. Correct. C-A. Yeah. Dot C-A. Thank you, Carson. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping all levels of real estate investors advance to the next level and help you customize your life. Be sure to tune in next week at rightclub.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you get a few seconds, please rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps the show get noticed by others like you. And we truly appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe.